Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. Now, I know I usually only do one interview per season, but I took in the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference last weekend and was wowed by a member on their panel. Melinda Mitchell is an oddball like me who enjoys the weird and macabre side of life, and we hit it off. She was gracious enough to give me an hour of her time to chat about the Victorian era, one of my favorite topics, the romanticism surrounding death at that point in time, myths that persist about Victorian funerary customs, and about her awesome museum-to-be. The audio on this one is a little odd at times, so I did the best that I could to clean it up. Before we get started this week, I wanted to give a shout-out to all the awesome pods on the Podmoth Media Network. With Halloween fast approaching, the pods on the network have been producing some awesome content that's sure to delight and terrify. Pop on over to podmoth.network for more information and download links. Also, rest assured that episode 12, the last episode of the season, will be an interview, as is my custom. The next voice you hear will be Melinda's. Enjoy, and as always, stay spooky. My name is Melinda Mitchell. I am the CEO, founder, and head curator for the Museum of Mortality, an up-and-coming museum that hopes to have its doors open sometime in the next three to five years. We are currently working towards our 501c3 not-for-profit status, which is the educational status that most museums need to hold in order for it to be a non-profit. So we hope to actually be able to file those papers um, come January which would give us the ability to really start taking on a lot more donations, things like that, to progress forward into looking for a building. I am looking at towards Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I live about 45 minutes south from there, so it might be a little bit of a drive for me, but I'd like to keep it somewhere where people have a lot easier access to get to it, whether it be if they're flying in to visit Milwaukee for a vacation, somewhere within like a 20-minute Uber drive of downtown or the airport itself. When I worked um, in downtown Milwaukee, um, I was at MATC for a little bit. Um, there were a lot of really cool, like, arch- like architecturally cool buildings um, down there and like, storefronts. So, I mean, I can totally see something like the, the Museum of Mortality being kind of there in the heart of the city, you know, just so close to everything. It's going to be a large draw not only from Milwaukee and Wisconsin, but from around the world. Yeah. Because the museum and its premise has something that so many people have a curiosity about, but don't necessarily think about doing the research themselves because they don't want to look like they're into these types of things in dealing with death. But the Museum of Death in Los Angeles and the one in Louisiana, they draw people from around the world, and they only deal with one aspect that the Museum of Mortality will be dealing with. The Funerary Museum in Texas deals with another aspect. Primarily, they get draws from around the world. Mm -hmm. And then the next closest 
for the third aspect of the Museum of Mortality, you'll find a lot of that at the Museum of Surgical Science in Chicago or at the Muter Museum in Pennsylvania. And again, they draw people from around the world. With Milwaukee being an international airport and meeting place, I think that will help give it a definite location that we will be able to draw visitors in literally from around the world. Yeah, the uh, the Mütter Museum is absolutely on my bucket list. Um, I need to get Thank there. <laughs> yeah, right. And then um, you said the one in Texas. You're referring to the um, National Museum of Funeral History. Yeah, I actually went there probably three years ago now. Um, but yeah, super cool place. And I mean, their collection of hearses is just amazing. Um, I, oh my God, I spent a ton of time over by the little case where they have the little, um, hat and the cowl of the coroner from the Wizard of Oz, (laughs) just because I was so fascinated by it. And I was like singing the little song in my head, you know, while I'm reading the information. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was really funny. And so many people there, like, I couldn't even believe it. I was like, what? Oh, Okay. I mean, this is cool that there are so many other weird people like me around who are like, this is how I want to spend my time in Texas. Um, oh, and that's the interesting part about, like, the Funeral Museum in Texas. People have a fascination with death, and we have become so disconnected with death that people like going there. But primarily it was set up more for preserving funeral heritage, you know, American funeral heritage, than anywhere else. It it doesn't really encompass a whole lot of aspects that come from around the world. Right. Like over in the UK, they, they, their funerals are a lot more different than ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of funeral history too, I mean, if we're going to talk about funeral history, I feel like we kind of have to start with the Victorian era because I mean, the idea of this having a good death and saving up all of this money um, to lay your loved one to rest and then to go there every year on the anniversary of their death to the cemetery to have a picnic, you know, because cemeteries were essentially like parks. Um, they still are, but it's, you know, it's kind of different now. All the tombstones are different and whatever, um, and lame, but, um, (laughs) super lame. They're like little tiny squares on the ground now. There's no like big mausoleums or anything. It's just, eh, I don't know. The reason for that, though, is because once we got into lawn mowing, they wanted to Uh, make it more of a park-like setting, but it was also easier for maintenance because then they didn't have to go around each individual headstone and cut away all the grass that would grow up around it. They could easily literally ride on a ride-on lawnmower and trim everything. Yeah, it's really funny because where I come from, all the, the cemeteries are all like big stones, and they just don't do that. I don't know. It's, I'm originally from Newfoundland, Canada. Um, so when I came here seeing like all the weird cemeteries that just look like big open parks, I was like, what is this? What, like, what are we doing? Um, because every tombstone where I come from is, you know, I mean, that's, that's a monument to your family members. So you want to leave something, um, extensive behind or as extensive as you can possibly afford, you know? Right. Um, and I'm sure that that, would it be fair to say that that was also true in the Victorian era? Like they wanted to kind of put as much financially into it as they could? More like details because that was the, the last image that they would have of their loved ones. So you wanted to encompass so many different aspects of their life. So with, you know, the iconography of tombstones, headstones, you know, the mausoleums, the, the type of stonework that went into it was trying to encompass an aspect you know, like every aspect of the person that's buried there so that they told it told a story of the person's life and who's buried there rather than just the, the name and the date. Right. So you had these huge monuments with all this, you know, this iconography on it to really depict who was buried below. And we've lost a lot of that sculptureship that we, that we had in the artistry that we had 100 years ago. Yeah, um, I think my great-grandmother's tombstone has... Um, it kind of looks like a big brooch and it has her picture in it, Mm -hmm. um, mounted on there. And then there's also, um, she was of the Salvation Army faith, so she has a Bible that's open. Um, and I forget what page it's open to, but there's also an inscription. Um, Mm -hmm. so what, what kinds of iconography were popular in the Victorian era? Like, was it the open Bible or? Um, more like skulls and crossbones. 
Oh, sure. You had the the time, the um, almost like how we call it nighttime right now, but the the sands of time. Mm. You had uh, wheat sheaves and willow mm. trees, urns pictured, all sorts of things showing and symbolizing, you know, that the the person's life had been cut short. Oh, sure. You had the olive branches for peace, the mourning doves for peace, uh, showing that the person had crossed over peacefully. Mm. You had so much. There, there's quite a few books that are, you know, at least an inch thick that, you know, walk through all the different, you know, images that were used during the Victorian era. It's oh, sure. absolutely fascinating that a tombstone can tell so much about a person. Yeah. Well, and for um, for young deaths, too, right, the deaths of children, they had, like, little lambs and cherubs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Roses. Roses. Roses were important for, for children. Hmm. And yeah. like a sheaf of wheat that had been cut short. Oh, Instead sure. Of like the long, wispy leaf, uh, wheat, uh, sheaves of wheat, it was cut short, so it was like, you know, just the, the top. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. So um, from there, I think I want to talk about hair art. Um, mm-hmm. Because, A, they have that wonderful collection at the National Museum of Funeral History um, yep. in Texas that... I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. There's just so much going on there and so much work went into it. Um, but for the, um, the hair art that contains the, the hair of children, um, you, Mm -hmm. you do often see like those, those wheat sheaves being cut off. So there's, I mean, they're even using the iconography in the hair art that they're creating. Correct. Well, back, back then they didn't have a lot of photography, uh, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, things like that started coming towards the middle to late Victorian era. So that's when we had the rise of post-mortem photography. Mm. So with the hair art, there was actually two different types of art that was done. It was called palette work or the weaving. In the palette work, they would lay the hair out literally on like an artist palette, glue it all down, and then cut it to form it into mm. the different images. So that's why you have pictures of like the weeping willows and the headstones right. and the urns and all this detail. And if you look closely, it's all human hair. Hmm. Now, a lot of time the hair was not taken from a decedent, but more from, you know, a family member that was very much alive. Uh, they kept hair keepers that, you know, when they would brush their hair, they would save that hair into a hair keeper. Mm-hmm. Part of it was to turn it into what we call a rat to basically get the big Gibson girl curls. They would take their hair and turn it into almost like a big sponge that they would roll right. their hair up into. Mm-hmm. So you would save your hair. You know, family members would save their hair. You know, as it grew long, you would trim it. You would turn it. You know, you could turn it into either pallet work or the woven stuff. It was given, you know, like jewelry, things like that was given more as a memory piece like hey you're going away here's a piece of myself to take with you because I can't just give you a photograph of my phone right so they it was more like sentimental jewelry now a lot of people go oh it's memento mori mm, they weren't necessarily dead especially right. if you see some of the hair work wreaths that have so many different colors to them that's hair that was saved by the family members of people as they they went along and then once it got to a point where you had like four or five people's worth of hair you could turn that into a big in essence a family tree woven into a wreath right and then um those the hair keeper keeper that you're talking about those were like those little glass Mm -hmm. dishes with the the open the hole in the top correct yeah my grandmother had one of those and i was like what she kept like mints or something in it and i was like i don't think that that's what that's for but that's good to know. <laughs> good information. Yeah. Um, she also had like the, um, the merc. I think it was like mercury glass, like the little handheld mirror and like the horse hair brush. It was all very like, it was like hair brushing was a ritual almost. It was. Yeah. It was definitely a ritual because you wanted to save as much of it as possible to either turn it into a rat, you know, or a shinion. Oh, sure. Or from, from there, you know, from there also the, the hair art. Right. So um, you mentioned something earlier about um, ambrotypes and daguerreotypes. Um, Mm -hmm. For people that don't know what those are, would you kind of be able to elaborate a little bit on what those are? Daguerreotypes were some of the first types of photography primarily using tin and a chemical bath solution that would be exposed to light. Now, for 
us nowadays, it's just a quick click of a button and it's a split second and we have a photo. Back then, if you were to sit for a photographer, an exposure could take anywhere from three seconds up to two minutes before <laughs> enough light would have hit the tin and the solution on the tin in order to form an image. And then from there, it would be baked into it, kind of like an enamel, where it would keep the image forever. Wow. And imagine being like two years old and being asked to sit for two whole minutes while somebody took your picture. <laughs> Depending upon if it was cloudy or not. I yes. mean... Uh, that's why you do see a lot of hidden mother photos. Oh, sure. Um, or, you know, tin types where the mother is in essence, covered up to look like a piece of furniture, but you can see right. she's pretty much holding on to a child. It was to help keep the child calm and still for, you know, anywhere up to the two minutes. Hopefully, most of the time, they would choose to do it on a Sunday day, so it would be 30 <laughs> seconds or less. But right. still, and a lot of times, you would see a foot prop underneath the feet of a child to have them, give them something to put their feet on so yep. they're not bouncing and wiggling because any type of movement at all would show up as a blur on the image itself. And that's one of the reasons why they also used a lot of posing stands. Now, a lot of people say, oh, if you see a tintype with a posing stand in it, that's because the person is dead. Well, no, it's not. It was actually used to hold the living because they were thin pipes with types of um, clamps to it where they would actually lock it in like in the back of the head mm -hmm. to help keep the head straight and in that position. Because when you try and hold your head up for a long period of time, focusing on one spot, it gets a little wonky. Right. Yeah. Well, the posing stands were not used on the bed. They were used on the living to help keep them still. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I worked at a funeral home um, when I was in high school and the funeral director had an extensive collection of posing stands. So I, I knew from the get-go when I was first introduced to them that they were not to hold up. I mean, you consider, you know, you're holding up dead weight. I mean, Literal like, like, yes. like go limp on the floor once and tell somebody to pick you up and don't help them at all. Like, right. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. You know, it, I mean, yeah. they were so flimsy. This is not a weekend at Bernie's moment where you can just right. put them into a pipe stand and keep them up, <laughs> keep them up right. No, right. so a lot of you know a lot of the the stands and stuff that you might see really were to hold the living, not the dead. Sure. Um, yeah. So recently, um, it was a couple of days ago. I went on um, Etsy. Etsy is like one of my favorite places to go to shop for like random weird knickknacks. And there was a seller on right, <laughs> and there was a seller on Etsy. Um, who had this huge collection of what she said were post-mortem photographs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were, I mean, I, I couldn't tell the difference. Um, I personally am no expert, but a few of them, I was like, uh, wait a second now, this is not, <laughs> you know. And a couple of them, like you said, were those hidden mother photos where the mother is under like a heavy blanket or whatever. And you mm -hmm. could absolutely tell that they weren't post-mortem photographs um can you kind of go through like some of the tells of you know what makes a post-mortem a post-mortem post-mortems are kind of hard to tell uh especially with nowadays when the image sometimes can be distorted over time where the the, the coating of it starts to warp and wave into the different lights Sometimes they would paint the eyes on, so, uh, you know, even looking at the eyes in a photograph might not tell you whether or not it's post-mortem. Some of the telltale signs are the body positioning, uh, hands, you know, crisscrossed or in prayer, you know, turned downwards where it's easier that they could kind of bind the hands to hold them together. Uh, pretty much most of the time if they were laying down in a bed or in a coffin, that's the definite telltale signs that's more than likely right. they're, they're deceased. But it really is hard to tell a complete and total post-mortem unless you see some sort of decayment of the body itself. Mm. So it's, it's kind of hard. But yeah. we've got a lot of different myths that have been floating around for years that people fall into, like the tear catchers. Um, oh, sure. It's a myth. And so post-mortems, it's, it's kind of hard to tell unless you really study the photo for any type of movement, positioning, things like that, to see if they're in a relaxed state or a held state, you know, mm -hmm. and also sometimes the eyes, but primarily the skin texture and whether it's slack mm. or if it's tight. Right. Because that, you know, once, you, once you're deceased, the muscles stop working, so your face right. wash is kind of slack. 
your body will kind of go slack. Right. And it's um, blur too, right? You want to pay attention to blur? Yeah. Whether it be the fingers, the hands, you know, the feet, some, some sort of, of, of slight micro movement that, you know, that would have set off, you know, some sort of a blur within the image. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm watching you right now on like Facebook video and as you're moving mm-hmm. your hand, there's a little bit of a blur and that, mm-hmm. so just to kind of give people an example of what blur looks like that, I mean, that's kind of sort of what it looks like. Like you can tell that, oh, you know, Think this lag. Tra- right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. You're just, that, that was lagging in the Victorian era. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, you mentioned something before about uh, tear catchers, and I, I want to go back to that because that's such a big deal in like the oddities collecting community. Um, so many people yeah. hang their hat on this idea of Victorian women weeping and catching their tears in these little vials and carrying them with them. Um, but I also wanted to um, talk about, like, so you, you said that it's easy... Well, not easy, but you said that you you could somewhat tell if something was a postmortem by, like, the um, coloration or, like, you know, the the firmness or the slackness of skin. Correct. Um, Wouldn't it also be true if, like, over time those images were exposed to hot, cold sunlight, you know, like, extreme temperature changes? You would have to look at how 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 the, the modeling appears, whether it's fully across the face like it's flat on the image or if it's modeled specifically onto the skin. Uh, that would be a good way to tell. Yeah, sometimes um, they would hand tint or hand paint the yeah. image. Yeah, that's just fascinating. I mean, you think about it too, you know, this is probably the only image of a loved one that some people ever had. And the Correct. first one that they have, this person is dead and they just, I mean, you put that on your mantelpiece. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is Uncle George. <laughs> you know, he's dead, but this is Uncle George. Beautiful in a way and also profoundly creepy, which, I mean, two things that I love. And postmortem photography is actually starting to make a comeback. Yeah. Postmortem photography is really starting to make a comeback. Uh, within this, because I'm also part of several different funerary groups uh, for funeral directors, and mm-hmm. postmortem photography, they've been talking about people have been wanting to finally get images. Of the of their their loved ones laid out in the coffin at the you know at the funeral home where it's all decorated up and it looks pretty and right. to give them that that sense and peace of mind that they did everything that they could to make them sure have a good death. Well, and I mean we're also you know because of the whole um, pandemic and I just said the word pandemic so now I have to add a disclaimer that we're talking about shitty pandemic stuff. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> But, uh, you know, funeral directors now, they're dealing with, you know, the, the deceased loved ones of, you know, people haven't seen their loved ones in a month. And so now you have people that, you know, I mean, what, what can you do, you know, but take a, take a photo and be like, yeah, you know, this, (laughs) this is the last photo that we have of my uncle or my cousin or my son or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, with having limited, uh, patrons being able to be there at funerals with not being able to have funerals, you know, pretty much there's been a rise in postmortem photography because yeah. most people wouldn't be able to necessarily hop on a Zoom call yeah. in order to be able to be there at the funeral. Right. So it's part of the disconnection from death that we are experiencing right now with the pandemic is we're not seeing, you know, the funerals, we're not seeing the, the hearses go by, we're not seeing right. the amount of death because it's not being publicized. So people are doing the postmortem photography as kind of their way of showing that, yes, this, this really did happen. Right. Um, yeah. I can't even imagine asking my grandmother to just hop on a zoom call. (laughs) It's probably not going to (laughs) happen. Probably not. Yeah. Um, so going back to these tear catchers. So Mm -hmm. why, why is this a myth? It's a, it's, it was a myth that started, who knows how long ago. I know Atlas Obscura uh, did a, a big report on it, too, where basically these these are toss-away perfume bottles that were ornately decorated. And somewhere somebody, in essence, wanted to start selling more of these cool glass bottles, and they came up with the myth of it being a tear catcher, a lactronaria. 
Now, there have been instances where it's been mentioned, you know, a lot in different cultures, like, you know, in Greece and, and Roman times, of women catching their tears, you know, for different things. Paganism and spell work, you know, collecting tears in order to, you know, cast spells. Right. So somehow this myth formulated that it was a standard of, Vict- of the Victorians that you would have to catch your tears in a vial, and then once it was full, you would basically leave it open and once it had evaporated down then your time mourning was over or you would take and pour them out over your loved one's grave to show them that you had fulfilled your end of the morning cycle right but it sounds beautiful and you know in essence romantic and romanticized which is what we do a lot with victorian traditions and, and customs we have romanticized so much of it that the true meanings and, and histories have actually been lost Oh, That's wow. Why there's so many myths out there, whether it's the posing stands, you know, that all the hair and hair art was from deceased people in the family, the the tear catchers. It's a lot of the romanticism that we've embellished it over the years. Hmm. And you know what? That actually makes me think about something creepy that my grandmother had in her house. Um, it was created shortly after I was born. And it was... It wasn't a photograph of me. It was like a generic, like, female baby kind mm-hmm. of lying on its side in a sleeping pose. And I can see by the look on and your face the, that your you first know. Curl. <laughs> yes. And yep. then they would, the first haircut, you would go yep. and you would take those curls and you would put them on the image. Um, Correct. So, so, I mean, it, it's hair art. To a degree. Yes. I mean, to a degree, but it's not. A deceased baby that somebody saved their hair, and now it's hanging in somebody's house. That that's a misconception that um, I'm a, a member of a bunch of like weird secondhand finds groups, and they're always finding these things at thrift stores. Are you weird secondhand yep. finds to be shared or whatever? And the more and the more uh, the uh, morbid one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I love those. Yes. I, I'm as a historian, I'm so tired of going. <laughs> this isn't postmortem. This isn't dangerous. Uranium glass is not harmful. Oh, no, yes, you can eat off it. Yes, you can be around it. Yes, <laughs> no. Yes, no. And you know, people going, well, what do you know? I'm like, I'm trying to start and run a museum. <laughs> I think I've had to research this. <laughs> At this point in time, I if I write a paper on everything that I have learned. I could probably be considered an expert in oh, sure. all of the fields that I have studied. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I think I kind of know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, I mean, I guess Facebook is so full of armchair experts that people don't know who to believe anymore. Um, That's why I started doing videos for YouTube, and I'll just yeah. in when people ask, I just go, here's the YouTube video. Here's the YouTube video, because right. I'm done explaining this. I mean, it's just... I have... I have well over a hundred pieces of uranium glass in a cabinet, and I've even taken my Geiger counter, set it on the shelf with the door open, set it on there with the door closed. You know, showing these people, you know, showing things, setting it out in the sun, which I really don't like doing because it does heat up the internal. Yeah, you know, but right. I can always replace it, and showing that yes, you end up getting more radiation standing out in the sun than you do standing next to a glass cabinet full of radioactive material. I mean, didn't I read somewhere that? the ground has more radiation than most of the uranium glass that you're going to buy at the thrift store. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 for sure, I've become a convert of, um, the collection of, of uranium glass. I, at one time was afraid of it because I was like, I'm going to get three eyes and I'm going to be like that fish on the symptoms. But now, I mean, I have a black light and I take it to, you know, the Goodwill or whatever and check and see if there's any there. Um, and everybody thinks I'm crazy, but it's like, I mean, I just like it. Like, I only have... It's, it's hunting it in the wild. I, I'm not... I mean... I don't... I'm not a green person, but for some reason, the color of the uranium glass yeah. and black light, I'm just like, it's so pretty. I just want to be that color for some reason. Or, you know, cadmium orange. Oh, <laughs> right. Mang- manganese pinks and oranges and reds. It's like, yeah. there's so many beautiful colors under black light. I feel like I should have been born in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I only currently have uh, an ashtray that I found... Um, in a little antique store up north, and the lady didn't know if it was uranium glass or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked her, I was like, do you happen to have a black light? 
And she looked at me like I had ten heads, and I was like, okay, no, no black light. I'll take it. Uh, so it was like $8 or whatever. Um, but it's just like this little um, this little ashtray, and it's got like the little divots in it. And there's, it's a little ornate, you know, it's a little cool. Um, and then one of my friends on Facebook was selling uh, uranium marbles. So I bought okay. ten uranium marbles. So now the uranium ashtray is filled with uranium marbles in a china cabinet in my house. Um, But that's literally, like, one of two things that I own that are allowed to be in the living room. (laughs) Because everything else has to hide away. It has to be in my office. Um, Yeah. Are you kind of, like, in the same ship? Like, you were saying, um, just for context, um, Melinda and I met at the paranormal conference, the Milwaukee Paranormal Con, um, which is amazing. Um, it happens every year about this time. And if you have not gone, you should absolutely go cause it's phenomenal. Um, but watch for all the videos from this year coming up on, on YouTube. Oh, that's right. We're going to be posting all the different lectures and things that were done, including mine. Yeah. Uh, are going to be posted to YouTube hopefully soon. Yeah. Um, I just got that email the other day that said, Hey, look at your replays. I was like, yes, yes, I will. Um, absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I was put with somebody unintentionally that doesn't appreciate my collection. Um, I mean, like, you know, like, okay, I love my wife. Okay, I do. Like, 110% to pieces forever and ever and ever. But please let me put one of my taxidermy mounts in the living room. <laughs> Just one. I, I can't have taxidermy mounts in my house, not because of the fact that I, I'm I'm I live alone with my son, mm. who's three and a half. He will try and cuddle with it and carry it around, oh. and then if he doesn't do it, then I, the the dogs and two cats will. Oh right. So mm. I I can't really have taxidermy in my house uh, because of the fact that I have five creatures that will destroy it. But once yeah. I have a location, then text it or me on. Yeah, right. <laughs> It'll be like my specific special place. I'm just, I'm running out of room. My mom and I yeah. have two different houses, two, two separate houses. We live nine doors apart. And oh, right wow. now you cannot move through her house. <laughs> not even sideways. She looks like a hoarder. And it's not that she's hoarding. It's the fact that she's got so much shit piled up to the museum <laughs> that it's taken over her house. Because... She's got one of our two coffins stored in her downstairs bathroom across the tub. Oh. Boards across the tub. She can't get out of the tub anyway, so it's not a big deal. So she's got (laughs) boards across the tub and then this coffin and a bunch of stuff piled up on it that's all going to go to the museum. Uh, She started hanging the hair art that she's got up on the wall in the bathroom just to get it off the floor. Yeah. And she, you can't move through her house. And unfortunately, my house is the same size square footage and even more packed than hers. So oh. hopefully soon we'll be able to start clearing our houses out into a location. Right. It, it's not going to be our location for the museum, but it's going to be a place for, to start where we can start inventorying the, the, in essence, the seed collection that's starting this whole thing, photograph it, inventory it. You know, and then start building some displays, rotating displays where we can start right. showing off the acquisition of the week, the acquisition of the month, you know, start yeah. talking about the museum, where we're at, have a big board going, okay, this is the prog- you know, steps that are being taken, this is where we're at now, follow along, see its journey, and hey, there's a donation box, drop in a few bucks. Right. <laughs> Every dollar counts. Yeah, I mean, personally, um, starting a, a museum of, like, creepy and weird shit, that sounds like my dream job. Like, are you completely stoked? You look like you're completely stoked. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've always had a, a morbid fascination with so much in life. I grew up where my parents used to do full graveyards and things like that for Halloween. And I didn't want to go trick-or-treating. That was, I didn't care about yeah. the candy. I knew I got whatever leftovers there were. My mom usually bought my favorite candy, so she didn't know about the bag under my, my bed. It was okay. <laughs> and... <laughs> So I, we did that, and then I was, like, 17 years old, and my dad, my stepmom at that point, the neighbors had gotten together and said, enough is enough, because they, they continued the tradition. My mom had the tradition, so I was going back and forth between two houses for Halloween, doing graveyards and full setups and everything, and the neighbors finally went to my dad and my stepmom and said, 
get your own haunted house. You're costing us too much money. <laughs> they were going through hundreds of bags of candy wow. on the block per house because of how many people that we got by. So we, hmm. in, when I was 17, we started our own, ha- we had our own haunt, actual haunted house. Oh, wow. So I grew up in, in the haunted house in, industry, and I'm like, hey, this is great, but I don't want to run haunts. <laughs> it's not my thing. I, it, yeah, it's okay. I've worked for haunted house, houses. I go in and critique them for them. I've been in the field, you know, in this field since 1999. My mom has always collected antiques since before I was born. There were several rooms that you couldn't go in and play with anything because the antiques are fragile. But I, I gained that learning and that knowledge that back then things were built to last. Right. And so I have always had my appreciation, but my mom started buying antiques. And I'm like, what, what are you going to do with this? And she's like, well, this is all going to go to you someday. Yeah, right. And I was like, oh, lovely. Can we start collecting something I'm interested in? And I started showing her some of the things that I liked. And she ended up doing a docenting gig in Naperville, Illinois. They have um, the big, huge area that's got all the different houses, like the halfway house and the mansion. It's the Naperville settlement. And they were doing an off-site grave walk, graveyard walk. And oh, she wow. participated in it. And then she was doing an, another talk and stuff like that up here after we moved up here to Burlington, Wisconsin. And she needed a Victorian morning outfit. She already had a cape. So she came to me because I was already doing Victorian clothing. She did all the way up to like the 1600s. I kind of picked up where she left off. Oh, wow. And so she came to me and she's like, I don't know how I'm doing this. You've already done it. Here's the fabric. Make it. <laughs> Uh, it was a dress from 1884 that was done in purple paisley and, and purple velvet, and I recreated it in black cotton velvet that's matte looking and then black linen and wow. recreated the skirt for her, bustle pillow included. <laughs> and so after that, she was like, this is actually really cool. <laughs> so she started collecting a lot of that stuff because she knew it would be something that I would want to keep in my collection. Right. And then one of my friends one day was sitting there going, I'm so jealous. Your mom just needs to adopt me, so when she dies, I get half of it. I said, over my dead body. <laughs> she goes, well, it should really be in a museum. Uh. <laughs> and I started looking around and thinking about it, that we really didn't have anything all in one place that explains it. You had the funerary museum in Texas. You had, you know, the Museum of Death in Louisiana and, and, and L.A., but you really didn't have anything that totally encompassed how our mortality rates really changed from the 1850s to the 1950s. Right. We went from heroic medicine of, hey, everything's caused by bad air, pus is good, <laughs> let's just, you know, bloodletting and leeches, honey, mud, right. maggots, throw all this medicine at them that was made out of mummies, things, <laughs> <laughs> things like that into having patented medicines and actually being able to survive things like stepping on a rusty nail. Yeah. Something like that would kill you back in the 1800s, and right. now we go, oh... I gotta go get another tetanus shot. Me and my arm hurts. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't just the medical thing. You know, the medical side that challenged and changed everything. In starting to research how to put all this together, I started to realize how much the funerary industry changed during that time frame, and how much it started challenging the medical side. Now we could preserve bodies, so we could actually take them all the way down to the nervous system. Right. Where the, you have the nervous system that has been dissected out from mm-hmm. every single microfiber in our human being body because we could preserve the body. Right. That started challenging the medical side, but then you also had the rise of spiritualism because, you know, mm-hmm. spiritualism and occultism, things like that have always interested me, you know, being someone who's an eclectic uh, Nordic witch. I. <laughs> <laughs> looking at all the different things like people go oh my god spirit boards and Ouija boards are the are the devil's handiwork no they were actually not they were you know for people to contact the dead because people were dying away from home right like they're doing now mm-hmm. and we had questions that wanted to be answered what was it like on the other side what was right. it like how was their passing did was it peaceful did they step into a light did do they feel pain anymore we had all these questions so things and devices mesmerism and hypnosis started to come about and then you had the rise of snake oil and flim flam medicines right that came with it like hey mm-hmm. we're going to do a seance and it's telling you to buy this product it's a one and all cure-all so that started challenging the medical side and 
So instead of just calling it the Museum of Death or Death Museum, because it's not just one aspect, right. we went with the Museum of Mortality because it encompasses everything that right. has changed from the 1850s to now. Right. Well, and you talked a little bit about dissection. I mean, mm-hmm. just just the fact that people figured out when someone was actually dead was like a huge deal. In, in funerary, when someone died, we would sit and wait for three days for a level of putrefaction that would happen to the body because then that showed they were actually dead because one of our biggest fears has always been being buried prematurely. Right. And back then, they didn't understand comas. They didn't understand things that you could actually recover yeah. from. So that was one of the biggest fears. So we actually, why awake is a minimum of three days was because it would take three days for the body to start, you know, putrefying. Yeah. Because, oh my goodness, the corpse just passed gas. They must be alive. <laughs> Not necessarily. Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. <sighs> there There's you the go. <laughs> You're done. Congratulations. Right. <laughs> yeah, um... I went to school at uh, Cardinal Stretch University. I, I got my bachelor's degree in writing and communication from there. And um, one of the halls is named after John Dunn Scotus, um, which I was always fascinated by that because, I mean, they don't they don't tell you the story of John Dunn Scotus. Um, and I'm not entirely sure if the story is true or not, but he apparently was, like, traveling from one point to another, and he had... Um, uh, a group that was traveling with them, this one particular person was supposed to keep an eye on him because he was prone to, um, I guess, lapses in consciousness or something. He would just randomly, like, lose consciousness. And uh, this person was supposed to travel with him to the next destination. Instead, decided that he was going to go and visit a brothel (laughs) and left John Dunscotus to his own meanderings. And I guess he had one of his episodes, and he passed out, lost consciousness, and because they didn't really know whether he was dead or not, um, they buried him, and they buried him alive. Um, so apparently he had a safety coffin. So he he thought that far ahead that he was like, you know, I do occasionally slip into unconsciousness, and that might be mistaken as death, so I'm going to do this extra little step. And so they buried him, and apparently they dug him up, like, a couple of days later because this person who was supposed to be looking after him came back and was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, like, so he's probably alive down there. Like, oh, my God, dig him up. And so they dug him up, and apparently there was, like, like digging, like, he was digging at the top of the casket. I don't know if you've ever heard that story or if it's true or not. I'm not sure. I, I have not heard that story, so that's actually pretty interesting. But yeah, there sometimes there's the very few rare occurrences that that actually did happen. Yeah. But safety coffins, unfortunately, most of the ones that were designed uh, were also designed to keep the bodies in mm. because of grave robbing. <clears throat> yep. And that's why you see the cages, over, you know, some of the cages over graves. It was not right. necessarily to keep the body in, but to keep others out. <laughs> right, not not and, for zombies. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a very rare occurrence if you ever were buried alive. But yeah, there's sometimes where they'd see where they did end up digging someone up and saw, you know, like in order to transfer them to another grave site or something like that. And they would see right. scratch marks. And that's when a lot of the safety coffins started to become patented, even if they weren't necessarily built. But yeah, it's, mm. it's one of our biggest fears. And it wasn't until pretty much the late 1800s when they finally started to realize, okay, when, this is how to tell if a person's dead, not just sticking a needle into their underneath their fingernails or their toenails right. or tickling the bottom of their foot looking for some sort of nervous response because if you're in a full coma, you're not necessarily going to have one of those. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, it seems to me that we've learned so much about death and at the same time we know so little about it. Um, right. You know, there's still that, that fear that exists. Um, you know, and that worry that we're going to pass into something unknown and then that's just kind of going to be it. Um, and I, I feel like in the Victorian era, they kind of had a better grasp on like what it was to die, you know, and what it meant to die. They became so desensitized to it. Mm. It happened all the time. 
back then, sex was taboo. Oh, my goodness, you could see someone's curvature of their ankle. They were a harlot. <gasps> oh, no, you contracted a sexually transmitted disease. You know, that was that was something that was not said in polite society, but yet right. you'd hear the bells tolling on the church and be able to pretty much narrow down who in town passed away. Yeah. It was so everyday that it just became the norm, and they weren't necessarily afraid of it you know so to speak they were still afraid of it because it could happen to anyone but that's one of the reasons why you have you know like the tombstone saying that says as i am you will be prepared for death and follow me right they knew it was going to happen they weren't necessarily you know okay with it but they were just a lot more comfortable with it because Mm -hmm. it happened all the time it happened at home they could they would see the process happen and they just knew it was going to happen we've become so disconnected from it's like we feel that we're invincible. Right. Nothing's ever going to take us down. You know, we're going to live to be 80, 90, you know, fall asleep and never wake up and we're going to be okay. So we don't want to deal with the fact that there's so much that we need to be dealing with now while we're alive. Right. And there's so many things that we don't talk about because we don't discuss that. We don't discuss what, you know, becoming an organ donor and how does this happen? How do you, you know, what can you do about this? Do you have a power of attorney in place? Mm-hmm. Do you even know what a power of attorney is? Do you have your advanced directives in place? Most Mm -hmm. people don't even know or realize that the day you turn 18, you need to have power of attorney in place for both medical and financial. Because say you turn 18, you're going out joyriding with some friends, you get into a car accident, you're in a coma, there's no real chance of you being able to recover from it and become you know, go back to where you were while well, you're kept on life support, you're kept on these machines, you're kept alive until your parents sue you to be able to take control to take take you off life support and right. make that decision for you. And meanwhile, all the medical bills are mounting up, mounting up, mounting up, and the, parent, the parents get stuck with it. Right. And they also, you know, to have power of attorney over financial because if you're in a situation like mm, you go to jail, they have power of attorney over your financials, so they can go to the bank and go, hey, we need to close this account down. They're not going to be out of jail for a couple of years. Right. Things like that, you know, to be put in place the day you turn 18. And most people are, you know, up there in age, and they're like, what's a power of attorney? <laughs> right. You know, and having your advanced directives. Okay, if, I, if I'm in a coma and I can't be brought, you know, can't be brought out of it and be able to function 85% of where I'm at nowadays, I don't want to be a burden on somebody. If I can't, if there's no guarantee that this is going to happen, pull the plug. Right. You know, it's not a DNR. It's not a do not resuscitate. You know, but having that in your advanced directives of, okay, if I get to this point, then the DNR goes into place. You right. need to have those things. And we don't talk about that because we're so afraid of talking about death because we've become so disconnected. Right. And unfortunately, because of this pandemic, we're being forced to kind of take a closer look at what we're doing and what we need to do. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the rise of postmortem photography again is not entirely surprising um, given where we are right now. Correct. Yeah. So if anyone's paying attention, Get your POA in place. Get your living will put in place. Get everything taken care of. It doesn't matter if you're 18 or 99. Mm-hmm. Get it done. Get it done now. Plan ahead. Because that takes the burden off of your loved ones. Right. To have to guess what is it that they would have wanted. Mm-hmm. Because you may not want to be cremated. You may want to do aquamation, which <laughs> is only available in certain states. Right. But you may want that. You may want to be wrapped in a mushroom shroud and buried without being embalmed, and your loved ones don't know that because you haven't told anyone because you're afraid of discussing the inevitable. Right. Yeah. So um, get having... it done, get it done now, face it. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, having been that person who had the unfortunate job of trying to convince a room of teenagers that they should be organ donors, um, not fun and not easy. Um, so if there are parents listening, have that conversation with your teenagers, please. Um, because they, I mean, you know, you're, you're 15 years old. Like you're not thinking about your own mortality because you're so alive. You know, your frontal lobe is not even formed yet (laughs) and you're not even technically a person yet. You know, you're, you're like this non-human magical entity that can do anything and everything. And yeah, I mean, having to like 
show these kids, you know, the, the donation videos and, um, you know, my life was saved because somebody donated, you know, somebody passed away and they were an organ donor and I got their kidney and whatever. I mean, they just, they don't have any mental <laughs> frame of reference for it. Um, and so they're just all horrified. And when I stop at the end for questions, nobody has any questions. <laughs> Not a sound. You can hear a pin drop. Nobody has any questions. So, I mean, you know, yeah, have those have those important conversations while you can because, I mean, there might come... You could walk outside your house and get hit by a bus. And, that you know, I mean, that's it. A, a jet engine could fall on your head, a la Donnie Darko. Get, get out of my head. I was just about to say <laughs> I mean, literally anything could happen. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. prepare. Yeah, prepare for the inevitable. Um, for exactly. Sure. Yeah. Prepare for the worst, plan for the best. <laughs> right. Um, so, I feel like I, I have monopolized enough of your time. Um, so, before we uh, say goodbye, did you want to kind of uh, do some shameless self-promotion and, you know, kind of put out there anything into the world? Well, um, my twofold project really is the is Madame Cora's Emporium. So I'm hoping to have a storefront open soon. That is helping to fund the museum. So you can feel free to check out Madame Cora's Emporium for all your creepy, weird, and fun, awesome things, whether it's from bones, skulls, to home decor. We, we pretty much have it all. And then with the Museum of Mortality, it's the museumofmortality.com. Until I get our 501c3, then I'll switch over to a .org. Right. We're available on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and the web all over YouTube. Nice. Well, Melinda, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you got a lot going on, but I, I really appreciate your, your time and expertise, and uh, thank you so much. I appreciate, appreciate being on here. Thank you very much. And yeah, have a wonderful day. Thank you again for having me. You as well. Thank you. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated. And the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.